Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. My guest this week is Imran Ahmed. Imran is the chief executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. In our conversation, we cover the relationship between misinformation, disinformation and hate speech. We explore why the financial architecture of disinformation might just be the key to defeating it. And hear some of the strongest criticism yet on this podcast of the major social media platforms. Imran, thank you very much for joining us today on Government vs. the Robots. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Um, what's that? Well, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate was set up to look at the ways in which um, people pushing uh, identity-based hate narratives um, and the misinformation that often underpins that um, in digital spaces, but also specifically looking at how that was being instrumentalized by fringe political forces. So we saw it happening, for example, with Brexit. We saw it happening with anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. We've seen that happening with Trump. But we've seen it around the world as well. Modi, um, Duterte, Bolsonaro, um, Netanyahu, uh, Orban and others. And the fact that it was happening simultaneously in so many places around the world and also that it was happening on every part of the political spectrum made it clear that this was about a a shift in the technology base that was creating new types of um, alliances, new forms of political movement, hybrid digital movements, which were able to create new forms of social proof that fringe ideas were popular, that they were able to use trolling to uh, scare their enemies, um, usually the institutions that, that underpin liberal democracy, the uh, a free press, the opposition, um, the judiciary, and also that they were able to reshape the way that we saw the world. So by understanding the mechanisms by which we in the modern world find information, I mean, you can't see now, but behind me is a bookcase for my Zoom calls, um, And I I always make the joke that I haven't touched that bookcase in a year and a half because for the main part, if I need to find something out, I Google it like everyone else. And so how are the spaces through which information is transmitted being manipulated by uh, malignant actors working with fringe political forces? That for us was really important. And we seek to counter that architecture. So how can we find ways to make sure that spaces like digital spaces that have the potential to do so much good aren't co-opted most effectively and aggressively by these malignant actors? How do we make sure that pro-social forces are able to use them more effectively? 
And really, that's what we were set up to do. We, we, we have this sort of unique space in the counter-hate uh, ecosystem, but one that we've, we've really enjoyed uh, working on for the past two and a half years um, as, a, as a private institution and for the last nine months as a public organisation. And how um, how did the idea first come about? Was it a kind of one of those um, frustrated sharing of grievances between a group of clearly quite motivated individuals or...? Um, actually, it was a group of quite frustrated individuals who came and asked uh, me and um, Will, uh, who set up the CCDH originally, well, what can we do about the situation we're in? And and even though I'm of Muslim heritage and clearly I'm, I, I'm you know, of South Asian origin, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time working on anti-racism stuff in the past. And, and I'm fairly cool about these things. Uh, I tend to look at things with quite a dispassionate eye. And so for me, what was less interesting was what the narratives, what mean things are people saying? Because my perspective is that there's always going to be people saying hateful things. The question was, why were they achieving such prevalence of share of voice in discourse? Why were they able to reshape um, the environment so radically to favor their solutions and what was the architecture of the systems what were the weak points of the architecture so for example with fake news sites the weak point was clearly to us from the beginning the fact that it costs money to run a fake news site and so if you can find a way to to look at their economic architecture and see how they're making money and then disrupt that it seemed to me that that was as effective as any counter narrative work or any exposure work because it would actually have an impact on their bottom line and force them to close down and i mean repeatedly we have managed to to, to shut down spaces and to and to essentially end the ability of certain actors from being able to operate, but also start to create a change such that new actors coming to the space would find it much more difficult to establish themselves. So ours is a systems and culture-led approach. And I, I guess that's, that's why we did it, was because we didn't feel there was anyone else using that sort of approach, uh, certainly in Europe. Um, and actually, I, mean, I can say that we're I'm about to... F- um, head to Washington DC where we'll be opening an office later this year. Uh, there's no one really doing that in the US space either. So I think that we brought a, a curiously um, analytical approach to it and less so, you know, I think the, the emotional drive and the moral impetus was given by those friends and colleagues who, 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 who were looking at this in despair. So I enjoyed reading the the kind of I don't know how I put it the the intellectual basis really of the foundation of the center which is on your website um, and I wanted to pick up on some of the sort of phraseology that's in there because and just ask you to unpack sure. it a little bit one piece being that you've mentioned a couple of times around the architecture of of digital hate mm-hmm. when you think about the architecture you know is that a shorthand for social media or presumably it's a bit more complex than that. It's much more complex. I mean, so we did a really deep dive into the phenomenon, and 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 we knew that Facebook groups were used, for example, for radicalization and for inculcation of misinformation, memes, and hateful narratives. But quite often, we saw that people wouldn't say, "I think X." They'd say, "Look at this." Doesn't this prove that X? And they'd be citing from websites which frankly, looked like news sites, but upon closer inspection were in fact vehicles for 
presenting an incredibly structured, shareable, one-sided view of the world, which we've called fake news sites. And, you know, Breitbart was the classic example that Sleeping Giants took on. But there is now an entire panoply of providers out there um, so in two or three weeks ago, we took down uh, Voice of Europe, which had to shut down, which was set up by three Dutch investors and was pushing out far right material. Now, the content on there wasn't necessarily incitement, but it was designed to be used for incitement of racial and religious intolerance and hatred. And in fact, had been used, we knew from our own uh, monitoring of very dark and very bad spaces in violent extremism and domestic terrorism uh, spaces. So we, we knew that, that we, we have an understanding as to how that's put together. We, we had an idea that there were actors who were involved. We looked at the network analysis that was done by other people, by much, much, much smarter people than me, because I can't do network analysis in that way. But we saw that there were nodal structures to those networks. And a very good example of something public that's been released on this is CST's analysis of anti-Semitism on Twitter. So there were key sort of nodes in that uh, in that network. And uh, the question that we put to ourselves was, well, how do we create the pressure needed for social media companies to deplatform those nodes within within the overall network architecture, given that they are responsible for the spreading of extraordinary levels of hatred and misinformation. And that that was the architecture that we were looking at. So it's it's various different parts of an overall digital it's an inherently digital ecosystem. And we knew as well that it was transnational because I mean you know, who cares if a like is from Australia or the UK when you're trying to create social proof? Who cares if the information you're citing was created by an American or a Norwegian? Um, and given that English happens to be the lingua franca, uh, we'll be proud to say of uh, white nationalism and white supremacy in particular, but also most forms of conspiracy. So, I mean, there's a reason why Brevik, for example, wrote his manifesto in English. It's because that is the language that's used for white supremacy. We we knew that we would be able to get, if we focused on the Anglosphere and the right-wing uh, white supremacist Anglosphere, that we would have pretty good global coverage of us in terms of the, the impact of our solution set. So, yeah, that's kind of the architectural analysis that we took to it. And then, like any ar bit of architecture, we looked for, well, what are the weak points? So almost like a structural engineer going through the architecture and going, well, where is the point that, that you would normally want to triple reinforce? Um, and where have they left spaces open that we might be able to stick our thumbs in and cause the edifices to start to collapse? Um, and that's really what we do is we look at those we look at the strategic architecture, we look at the weak points, we work out, well, which ones can we affect? And we're a tiny organization. I mean, we are chronically understaffed, there's four of us uh, full time. And then we have an exceptionally experienced and active board, um, people like Damien Collins, MP, Lord Johnny Oates, uh, Kirsty McNeil from Save the Children and others who um, add a huge amount of insight um, experience, mo uh, a moderating hand, and and work. I mean, they do. They 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 put in a lot of effort themselves. So we're we're fairly small, but that's that's why the architectural analysis was critical to it. Because other, you know, what we can't do is is amass an army. And and as well, we know that counter narrative work, like getting a bunch of people to go, you're horrible scumbags, actually just amplifies those narratives and creates a sense of equality of arms and equality of of, of purpose. So um, yeah. So 
sorry, I, I've witted. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to know that you've got sort of such a comprehensive coverage of kind of why you're taking the approach that you're taking. And I, I want to come on to ask you a bit about the money, which I know is a part of kind of where your analysis of the architecture has led you in terms of where to apply pressure. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a really important point for discussion. But just before we jump on, um, you mentioned Damien Collins is a, is a previous guest on the show. Um, I know that several of Kirsty's colleagues are avid listeners to Government versus the Robot, so I'll say hello to them while they're listening. Um, just before we kind of move on from the, the foundational aspects of the centre, I just wanted to ask about where you draw the line between, uh, without wanting to be too glib about it, hate and debate, because it's evident that there is a large amount of, of hate on social media. And it, I think it's also, to those of us that look at this, is kind of taken for given that social media manufactures stronger emotions amongst its users. A, a large part of kind of the problems that I dance around talking to guests on this podcast are sometimes about areas of profound political disagreement and the strategies that different uh, political groups are using to pursue their ends. They're not necessarily about sort of hate per se. So where do you where do you draw the line between kind of what is a is somebody using a particular issue to to draw a political dividing line between somebody who's kind of obviously stoking up hate? Well, it's a complex question. As you rightly say, there is a huge amount of debate over it. I like that debate. I find it fascinating on an intellectual and philosophical level. And it's a debate that's worth having. And there are very smart people that are having it right now. The question of how to define hate, we look at it in one of three ways. The first is that most of our solutions do not rely upon direct identification and saying that something is hateful. They seek to persuade someone else that they might want to rethink whether or not they publish something which appears hateful. And so in one respect, I can be quite cute about it and say, I don't have to define hate. It's the advertisers, it's the platforms themselves that decide whether or not something is hateful. I mean, the, the, the really uh, sort of, I guess, unique thing about what we do is we, we don't do exposure work. What we do is targeted, um, targeted identification of hateful narratives and then bringing that to the right stakeholder who can take the right action. So whether it's an advertiser who we want to take their adverts off a hate site uh, or it's Facebook to say, why are you allowing this when your terms of service say that this would be unacceptable? That in one respect, we we rely on others' definitions of what hate is to, in, 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 in our day-to-day -day work. The second is that quite often... What the, what the architecture does is they're very good at playing and skirting around um, the very slow, lunken attempts by regulators or governments or international bodies to define hatred, and certainly much more nimble than the academics uh, on trying to define hatred. The, the old question for me is, if 100 out of 110 stories about how Muslims are paedophiles on your website, I know what you're doing, mate. I do know what you're doing. I do know what narrative you're trying to push. And as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the majority of people are concerned, as far as the advertisers who you've inadvertently placed on your website are concerned, that's a hate site. And in that respect, it, it borrows from that famous Supreme Court justice's statement when he was asked to define pornography. And he says, I can't really define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And in the same way, we all know hate when we see it, don't we? 
We do. And I wanted to sort of praise you for the work that you've done to date as a small chronically underfunded in your own words organization um, and sort of pick up on some of the impact that you've had not least through the stop funding fake news campaign which i was kind of keeping keeping an eye on and participating in a year ago and all of a sudden an equivalent has sort of snowballed i think beyond anybody's wildest dreams in the states in terms of uh, advertisers pulling their money from facebook um, can you just kind of talk me through a little bit of, of how the Stop Funding Fake News campaign started, where it got to, what sort of impact do you think it's had? So Stop Funding Fake News was based on this idea that we kept seeing adverts appearing on the websites that we knew were pushing hateful narratives, whether it was Politicalite or The Canary or Westminster or Evolved Politics or Tommy Robinson News or Rebel Media, which were our initial target set. And we saw the adverts on there for Burger King or for eBay. And we just thought, well, I wonder if eBay knows what they're up to. And the more that we studied it and spoke to senior advertising executives at brands whose adverts were appearing there, to other folks in the, in the, in the ecosystem, they sort of said to us, well, yeah, I mean, we often don't have any control. So when you come and tell us that our adverts are appearing, we're really grateful. And Stop Funding Fake News was set up to to really to do that work to to help to help to help fix an information asymmetry in that the google ads know where the ads appear the news sites the fake news sites themselves know which adverts are appearing and they certainly know that the money is going to their bank accounts but the brands themselves have got no idea because they've bought 500,000 eyeballs across a certain demographic and psychographic set and they have no idea where they end up appearing and so that was really that was the model that we chose we we're very clear that, like, I mean, you know, we have Tories, we have Liberals, we have Labour uh, on our board. We are not party political. I'm not a member of any political party myself. You know, I, I don't have any particular impetus to make the world anything apart from to protect what I believe to be the genuine great accomplishments of mankind over the past few hundred years, which is um, the Enlightenment and liberal democracy. I think liberal democracy is being undermined by these forces. And so we position ourselves as, a, as an enlightenment force going against counter-enlightenment forces which wanted to push conspiracist, anti-expert, faux populist, and um, hateful and, and mendacious narratives. And really that, that suited us quite nicely. So and it made it very easy for Gary Lineker to jump in and say, yeah, I agree with you, because it's not about, you know, left or right. It's about truth and BS, really. And so you're presumably you're cheering on the campaign in the states at the moment that's seeing huge brands pull their money from Facebook. When I was in February, I spoke to John Greenblatt from the ADL. I was on the phone with Richard Robinson from Color of Change earlier this week. We've been talking, coordinating, sharing ideas. This is part of a uh, an overall shift in the attitude amongst civil society to say that for many years we've been negotiating with these companies. Yeah, been going into back rooms and we've been there's been obfuscation and outright lies and that these companies have tried their best to, to to get us into debates like what is hate and oh, can we have an expanded version of hate would you consult to us on it and a lot of company a lot of um, organizations have taken money from these companies have really bound themselves in well 
civil society's kind of got to the point now, and I think COVID's really focused minds. I mean, we can see the misinformation, we can see the lies, we know what it's causing. And people have said, well, no, this is simply unacceptable at this point. They keep lying to us. And that's why we put out the Will to Act report a few weeks ago, which showed that even when you report misinformation to them, nine out of 10, over nine out of 10 pieces aren't taken down in breach of their own terms of service. I thought what was particularly effective about that was that when we put out the report, Facebook texted me the next day and said, we've taken down all the stuff that was in your report. Well, why didn't you do it before? Why don't you do it when we reported it to you? In fact, our youth volunteers reported it to you. And so, what 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 I think this is is a shift in the in in the approach being used, not just by civil society, but I know for sure that government has, is seeing what's happening and thinking, well, gosh, actually the online harms legislation, there's quite a lot of will now from across the board for a much more assertive and muscular approach to it. I record now this information isn't out there, but on Monday we've done some we've done some polling which is coming out which will show what we asked the public what should happen to social media companies if they fail to take down vaccine misinformation. We asked it in the US and the UK across every demographic, across every political leaning, um, a significant majority backed the most stringent punishments being imposed on social media companies that fail to act. So that was true for left and right, for ages, for geography. Um, and I, I think the public have already synthesized that in that balance of freedom of speech versus the right not to be called um, horrible names, not to have uh, hatred inculcated against you, not to be fed misinformation, that you have a right to good knowledge. We have a right to information. And if people are trying to trying to deliberately sully our information and ecosystem with misinformation and disinformation that and if that's being not just tolerated but encouraged by the algorithms within social media companies people turn around and go no actually this is a balance of rights here that the, the, the right to be to, the right to have your voice amplified but also the right not to have bad voices forced into our ears constantly and so i think in that respect we are seeing now um, stop funding fake news, stop hate for profit as being, th these are the new types of campaigns that we will see very big, very well-established civil society organisations willing to take part in. Uh, and I, I think you're right. I, I think you're dead right. And I wonder if you could um, just expand a little bit. One, there was a, there's a huge success you've scored in getting people across the political spectrum to agree on any point, uh, which seems increasingly difficult to do these days. I do wonder if you showed them some content and asked them whether it deserved the stringent uh, punishment or not. It, it might be a different state of affairs. But um, I'm keen to, for listeners' benefit, really, to just kind of get beneath the lid a little bit of the financial architecture of how um, these kind of the architecture of online hate, as you put it, but equally, I think that it's probably applicable to the kind of architecture of broader disinformation and misinformation structures. Um, so we, we, you've talked about the, the money that big brands spend to advertise and use the phrase buying eyeballs. Where else in the kind of online ecosystem of online hate is the money? Who's, who's making money and what are the incentives? Because it strikes me that there are significant financial incentives to people to produce fake content. Yeah, but almost all of the online companies that we've talked about, Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc., um, they are all not business-to-consumer companies. They're all business-to-business companies, and most of their revenue generation is through advertising. So to Facebook, you and me, all of the listeners, we're not users. 
we're certainly not their customers, we're their product. The detailed information that we happen to put onto their system because we've been encouraged to do so by a very cool service that lets me stay in touch with mates of mine from school and from university and from back home in Old Trafford. You know, I put down vast amounts of information about myself. That information is packaged and I am a product that's then sold my psychographics, my demographics and my inclination in the moment to real customers, which are advertisers. So advertisers are the key. And lots of advertisers are B2C companies, they're business to consumer, and they really are vulnerable to public pressure. So that's why both Stop Funding Fake News and Stop for Hate Profit have been genuinely effective. It's because they understand that we aren't the consumer, we aren't the customers, we're the product. But other companies which need us as the public, they genuinely are sensitive to public pressure. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And the money isn't just, you know, you're right. You're obviously right about the money in advertising. And I think that's the largest sums. But for a lot of people who create kind of clickbait sites or or host, you know, they create ecosystems which are built around clicks that, that also share narratives of hate. There's money to be made in, in doing that as well, right? 
Sure. I mean, and that will be a mixture of advertising and then potentially other forms of monetization. So whether that's subscriptions by Patreon or it's having a merch store or something else. But generally speaking, it's advertising. There are, I mean, in the report we talk about, in the, the one that we've just released on anti-vaxxers, we, we do see some super actors who sort of, who create marketing funnels. So they create vast um, audiences on social media and then funnel them into private spaces in which they monetize them. And actually, we had a lot of fun with this. So my head of research um, came to me and said, uh, can I have 80 quid, please? And I said, why do you want 80 quid? And he said, uh, I'm about to go and buy myself gold membership to uh, this particular uh, conspiracy theorist slash spivs uh, service. So he went down the marketing funnel and we all had great fun watching him being marketed to, taking bets on how long it was before he started um, believing that vaccines were microchips that would stop you getting into heaven uh, because of Bill Gates. Um, so it was, uh, it, uh, you know, there are there are multiple monetization mechanisms. Advertising appears to be the single most effective one, though. Um, and that's just our experience. So, I mean, we know that there are other monetization um, routes. And I'm sure there's some foreign flows of money as well. And we're not very good at doing that. That's kind of, you know, there's other organizations which are amazing like that, like ISD. And then, of course, there's the security apparatus, uh, the national security apparatus within our governments, which is looking at these things and trying to find ways to cut those flows. But um, for us, the advertising was something that, you know, we, we, we leave to others to do the bits that they can do. We do the bit that we can do. And we happen to have a, a solution on, on making sure that advertising can be cut. And you've referred to the anti-vax report that you did this week, which again makes the point of the the huge amount of money that your analysis says that social media companies are making from the anti-vax movement. Yeah, I mean... Because, I mean, quite simply, when Facebook a few years ago decided that they were going to deal with hate, they commissioned internal studies. And this is what the Wall Street Journal splashed on a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, was their internal studies on can we can we reduce the divisiveness of our platform? And their conclusion was, well, no, divisiveness kind of is our business model because the creation of consensus-based communities on social media for zero marginal cost by any actor who comes along, capable of transcending any national boundary, is a phenomenal way to keep people engaged. We, we are, we, we're an intensely social species and we like to join clubs, basically. We like in-groups. It's kind of, it's right in there in, in, in the way that we function and think, our, our basic psychology almost well not almost literally our subconscious psychology and so we are always looking for ways to create that sense of community and connection and facebook is able to do that the problem is when it's co-opted by malignant actors to create consensus-based communities which are around deciding that i'm subhuman and that's a problem and their terms of service are meant to block those, but they don't, because in reality, if they did, they'd start to annoy and lose the stickiness that's so attractive for a significant coterie of people. And you'll say, but the majority don't like it. And so therefore, you know, why would they keep them? Well, because frankly, they don't care. And we will never see them because those consensus-based communities are for the individuals who, who are in those consensus-based communities which are around hatred or misinformation. And so if they can have them, and if no one's going to create any consequences for them for having them, they'll keep them there um, because they create stickiness. And stickiness means eyeballs, and eyeballs means ad revenue. And so part of our job is to make the cost of having them higher than the benefit of having them. 
whether that's economic, social or political cost that we're creating. And I think that that's part of uh, that's You know, that's really the approach that we've used is part is it's the absolute fundamental core of our analysis is change the calculus. And do you think that some actors who kind of who curate these it's interesting use of the phrase consensus based groups, because obviously everybody tends to think of discourse on social as so conflictual. But do you think the people that curate these groups is hate their motivating point or is it financial? Can it be financial as well? Both. And I don't I don't. So I'm often asked. Do you think this person's really hateful or do you think they're doing it for the money? And I just say, I don't really care if your job, if, if your life's work is to create hate and division, well, then you're going to expect there to be a counterforce, aren't you? I mean, surely. And, and that's part of the sort of the cancel culture whining that I hear so much about really just doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't emotionally. I'm utterly un, uh, unmoved by it because this notion that you should be allowed to spout white nationalist racism on social media because you have freedom of speech. Did you not think there might be a counter argument to that? And did you not think that they might try and make sure that your voice isn't amplified by the inherent algorithms which benefit controversy over factualness? So, I mean, that's the thing is that they've benefited for so, for so long. They've lived so large. They've gotten so fat. And you think about Steve Bannon and his network and how he's monetized essentially this central insight into how social media companies work and how others within his networks have done so and how that's been done on the far left as well and on the far right and in every sort of conspiracy theory group i mean they don't they don't have political boundaries and quite often they 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 cooperate with each other and if you look at these consensus based communities they've they've managed to live a good life they've managed to change politics in many of our countries I mean, it was inevitable that someone would work out what was going on and that there would be pushback. And we really see ourselves as being when sometimes folks get a little bit squeamish about pushing back because, of course, we are liberals and we believe in toleration and tolerance as, as a core idea. The problem is that you, you simply cannot be tolerant of people that would fundamentally collapse liberal democracy because you can collapse our economy. Liberal democracy allows you to rebound. You can collapse our environment or, or worsen our environment. And liberal democracy is our best hope for, for fixing it and for building a sustainable future. You collapse a liberal democracy and no matter how big your economy is, it doesn't recover. That's the road to fascism. So, I mean, I'm hugely with you in spirit. And that, that's one of the reasons why obviously I do the, you know, it's one of the reasons this podcast exists. I wonder what what is your analysis of the many hundreds of thousands of people who are in, uh, say it's an anti-vax group, right? So I think anti-vax is, a, is an interesting example because it isn't necessarily, uh, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not necessarily about manufacturing hate, but there's a, there's a kind of junk ecosystem out there around the information on vaccines. The hundreds of thousands of people who are in those groups, to what degree are they, and complicit might not be the right word, but to what degree do you deal with them being a part of the problem? Because the people who curate or instigate these groups you know, clearly can be targeted and the social platforms can, can be targeted. What about the kind of the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of just ordinary people kind of playing along? So and that that's complex, and I'll unpack it. So let's. Uh, I'm going to start first of all with the idea that, that it's not necessarily a hate group. What we find quite often is a constellation of beliefs that comprise a radical worldview, 
that forms what we call the digital counter-enlightenment. And you'll see this constellation of beliefs um, coexisting in actors and in spaces. And as soon as I start mentioning them, they'll be familiar to you. Climate denial, vaccine denial, identity-based hate, men's rights, incel stuff. I mean, all sorts of um, coexisting. And there are spaces which cherry-pick aspects of that radical world and put them together. And one of the questions we asked ourselves is, why do these, why do these constellations of beliefs cohere? Is there a centripetal force at the center that helped them to coalesce into one movement? And that's because they are based fundamentally on faux populism, on anti-expert beliefs and conspiracism. And at their, at their very, very core, they have this idea that we're in constant competition for scarce resource. And those, these, these groups, this radical worldview, this digital counter-enlightenment, we see each part of it as being mutually reinforcing and as being inherently opposed to our perspective, which is that liberal democracy, the Enlightenment, are the roots to bettering our societies, and we want to better our society. And so if we look at that radical worldview, looking at an anti-vaxxer is, first of all, that philosophically I can I can justify it to myself. Second, that how did we first start seeing the anti-vax stuff? We started seeing it in about January in social media spaces that were primarily identity-based hate because that's our normal work. And when we started seeing it being co-opted, when we started seeing, well, actually it was coronavirus stuff initially and then anti-vax stuff. So it's coronavirus misinformation, then anti-vax stuff in these identity-based hate spaces. It's because it feeds into the idea that the government's trying to kill you and that elites are trying to kill you. Doctors are trying to kill you. They're all lying to you. Only we're telling the truth. And we're telling you the truth that actually there has to be X happening and Y happening. And that is... That's, that is this fringe radical worldview in action. It is so tactical. It's so good at uh, instrumentalizing whatever comes along in the moment to work for itself. Now, anti-vaxxers themselves, um, those people, are they identity-based hate actors? Some of them are. I mean, Ike, for example, is an identity-based hate actor. There are others. And I've noticed quite a lot of them are also anti-BLM, which you know, again, fits in with the radical worldview um, and the digital counter-enlightenment. Those people we've, um, we can say, well, yes, they, they exhibit sort of identity-based hate views, which we can counter on, on either the level of um, hate or on the fact that it's misinformation. But the cases belly for um, the anti-vaxxers is quite simple. They're trying to kill us. They're trying to kill people. They're trying to kill innocent lives. And that's surely a good thing to oppose. And so we don't really feel this great sort of, you know, gosh, we were set up to deal with hate. But these people, they're merely trying to kill lots of people. And to us, it seems like something that we'd like to counter because science and, and, the, and vaccines themselves were this extraordinary creation by mankind that, that has saved millions of lives, especially young children, from being crippled, from dying. It's an incredible achievement. And they would seek to undermine it for their own either economic or ideological narrow solipsistic perspectives and so in that respect it, it's it i mean again i i, I i'm not very angst ridden about these things i, I kind of just think well yeah they're part of the problem. i'm sat feeling a bit angst ridden because i'm thinking about you know to sort of a mother of two kids in their mid-40s who's stumbled across a, who's probably had a facebook algorithm promote an anti-vax group into her feed um she's gone in there and now she's terrified for the lives of her two kids 
And I, I don't equate, I, I, I struggle to equate that with somebody actively trying to kill us. I mean, I, 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 I think somebody who is actively feeding and, and funding this ecosystem, absolutely. But to the, a lot of the people who are kind of unknowingly complicit in the problem, uh, that's where I kind of wonder what more can be done with them, because I, I would I would hesitate to ascribe the same degree of malice to them as I would people orchestrating this. I, and, and absolutely, and I can totally agree with you. And I actually know lots of people that hold these opinions. And, and yeah, there, there's a very strong on the sort of, if you go up the road from me to Ladbroke Grove, you'll see the, the group set. And of course, the, what in Brooklyn would be called the Park Slope Liberals. And of course, the, the, there is a, a subset of anti-vaxxers who are sort of into vegan lifestyles and you know natural health remedies and everything else. And it all fits into part of a lifestyle, sort of part of an Instagram set, so to speak. In what way do our um, our solution sets impact them? Because what we seek to do, of course, is remove the advertising for Sky from a site that is pushing narratives that were the reason that person was misinformed in the first place. And in that respect, what we don't do is take a... We, we, we are not going out and campaigning to say that someone who's fallen for some misinformation is a bad person. We absolutely don't. Nor do we even want to, nor do we think that our skill set is to um, try and persuade them differently. We know that there are counter-narrative specialists, there are people that look at inoculation. So Sander van der Linden at the Fake News Unit at Cambridge is a collaborator and he's fantastic and interesting in the things that he's trying. There are lots of things being done to try and help people who have fallen for misinformation created by by disinformation agents, by the, by the people who are behind it. And that's why our report focuses on people with 2 million followers who are proselytizing it as a way of life, either for economic reasons, as we lay out, or for ideological reasons, or because they are fringe political actors who are seeking to, to create distrust about government, science, and, and all these important institutions that keep our society functioning and effective. And so I, I would never want to try and take on that massive task either, because I think that we're well suited specifically to trying to make sure that other people aren't infected with misinformation in the same way. I can see why if you, you know, if, if, if I was the sort of person that went online and said, you are wrong to anyone, you know, I could see why someone might be squeamish about that. But we don't do that about normal people. What we do is we target the key actors involved in the proselytization. That again, we go after the architecture, not the individuals. The anti-vax report does a really good job of um, going after the architecture and actually picking up, picking out one or two individuals who thoroughly deserves to be picked out. Um, but you, you know, you have done a good job of practicing what you preach there in the sense of um, really going after the the orchestrators and the instigators rather than the the kind of um, co-opted masses. So one of the secrets is that we really, I really do follow the, the maxims of don't feed the trolls. So people do troll me all the time saying, you're wrong, I've, I've heard this and it's really important. And my reaction is never, ever to insult them or try and change their mind. I block them. I just block them. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I can help. I don't think I can engage in positive discourse with them. And so don't feel the troll says, if someone's trying to pump in misinformation for you and don't spread the virus as the same thing, ignore it, block them, move on. 
and report it should you wish to. And then go and find some pro-social information and go and, and go and push that instead to try and make sure that you're inoculating others against it. And I, do, I really do live by the maxims that we push. That's quite a, um, it's quite a good link to the question I wanted to ask, which was essentially to come back to, you mentioned the, w, the Wall Street Journal splash um, about Facebook fessing up that its algorithms were promoting division and sort of saying, well, we don't think we can do much about this because it's our business model. And mm. the I was going to ask whether you agree with that or whether you think there is scope on social platforms to try and create better grounds for engagement. But I suspect given that answer you just gave me, the answer is no. Well, I mean, there are really clever people working on that. So, I mean, you know, Tristan um, Harris, uh, CHT, uh, Centre for Humane Technologies and um, gosh, Tim Berners-Lee at the Web Foundation work they're doing on algorithmic redesign. I mean, I talked to Roger McNamee and others about these things. Um, and there's really smart people looking at the underlying algorithms. Uh, Guillaume as well, who's uh, ex-Google. Um, and, that, you know, there's lots of people looking at these things and trying to work out, well, how can we make algorithms which are less antisocial? But again, to get there we would have to persuade private companies to voluntarily change their business model in order to do so. And they're really cool about this as well, that someone needs to create the understanding and moral pressure for those changes to be made. We can't force them to do so. I don't even think we're going to get government to, to come close to doing that. And I think it's quite dangerous to ask government to do something like that. But we can persuade them to do so by creating enough awareness of the negative consequences of their algorithms as they stand right now, which as the Wall Street Journal's, um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a fessing up, it was a leak of their internal documents in which they said, our algorithms specifically advance division. And that was an incredible thing to read because we've all known it, and those of us who work in this industry, to see it written down in black and white. I have to admit, I did feel emotional. It was like we were right. Yeah, and that story is one that we I did, discussed with Pete Pomerantsev in the first episode of this series. Um, you mentioned how much we can expect from government, and I'm conscious that the British government is still working through the online harms bill. What's your sense of what's in there? Is it doing enough? Would you change it? So I'm on the Commission for Countering Extremism Steering Committee, which is part of the uh, the home. It's a Home Office Quango run by Sarah Khan, who is a phenomenal. Uh, former civil society campaigner. She ran Inspire. Um, we've spoken to the DCMS COVID disinformation cell uh, on a regular basis um, to others who are working on this to behavioral insights. And I think that, I mean, it's not my, I'm not, as I say, I'm not even a member of a political party. I don't want to express an opinion on uh, any political question. I think that you can see in the behavior of a lot of politicians in the last few months that like the public, everyone is pulling together for us to get through this, the, the, the coronavirus crisis. I think that coronavirus has really focused minds on why online harms uh, legislation is needed. Um, I spoke to folks like Will Perrin, who came up with the original sort of, you know, statute duty of care, was pushing the statute duty of care model for online harms. And I agree with him that it's absolutely critical that online harms integrates a statutory duty of care model, that where there is gross negligence um, that leads to public harm, to death, to really serious consequences for society, that people should be held accountable for it. 
Now, whether or not that happens, I don't know. But I do believe that there are lots of good people, both within and without government, who are pushing for that. And we see our role as merely adding to the evidence base that's required for that action to be taken in a robust way. And throughout this conversation, Imran, you've really articulated really well the role that the Centre for Countering Digital Hate is playing in, in doing just that. And you've also referenced a couple of campaigns that have been really successful and have been emulated by others in other countries with you know even greater degrees of success. I always try and end the show with a kind of positive note. So what's your what would be your message to campaigners wanting to work in this space or thinking about how they can contribute in this space? I'm really optimistic, Jonathan. I, I really am. I think that we... It's like science, you know, as the evidence rolls in, as our understanding changes, so our mastery of some of the problems that are out there improves. And there are now models for action that work. I mean, I think we've been in an analytical phase for many years now, trying to build you know, beautiful network maps and understanding the situation, so essentially on the situation analysis portion of this. We are now quite clearly in the action portion of this. That means that we do need a diversity of approaches, of insights, of expertise. CCDH, we work with everything from neurologists to social psychologists to individual psychologists to counter-extremism and counter-terrorism experts. We synthesize. Syncresis is the key to effectiveness as campaigning and action-oriented organizations that seek to create positive outcomes. And so this is the moment. If you think you can lend your mind, if you've had an idea that's bubbling away and you thought to yourself, you know what, why doesn't someone do that? Well, now's the moment, not just in CCDH, but I think in many other organizations throughout the counter-hate world, but also in, in all sorts of all sorts of other places, you will find people who are who who understand this problem, who want to try new things, and this is a really exciting space to be in right now. I mean, if you want to be at the cutting edge of things that can genuinely change and master a technology that has the potential to do huge amounts of good for for, for people, but currently has been co-opted by bad actors and is being used in the wrong way. Now's the moment. But I I am so optimistic, Jonathan. I think things like Stop Hate for Profit and Stop Funding Fake News have sent a message and they will continue to grow. There's there's no way that these things will will now atrophy because there's so much will, there's so much goodwill towards them. Um, And we are so determined um, that I think that it is inevitable with with sufficient hands pushing the, the, the moral arc of history, that we will push it towards justice once more, even if it has been bending the other way for, for, for some years. We well, did a great job of ending us on a positive note. So thank you very much for joining me, Imran. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's all from us this week. I think I had ringing in my ears the age-old adage that you should follow the money as one of the takeaways from this conversation. We'll be back next time, but my thanks as ever to Sky Redmond for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore B-S underscore Robots. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.